I was not ready for this today. This was heavy. But important. But very important. important. But this is heavy. And we're about to get heavier. Oh, yeah. You're going to take us out on a cheerful note? No. <laughs> I don't want to take abuse from why you when you're doing it even you know, worse. Why, why couldn't I just do my article on the squat? Like, you can't squat trucks. It's about to go into effect. We can talk about penguins again. I mean, that seems to be a common theme in our show. We always love to talk about penguins. Yeah, this is depressing. Let's go. Welcome to Black, White, and Blue in the South, a podcast discussing democratic politics with the Southern Flair. I'm Bill Kimler. I'm Jamil Brooks. And we're coming to you from Greenwood, South Carolina, a little red county in a very red state. Mm -hmm. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating, tell your friends about us, follow us on social media, or better yet, can someone with connections to Senator John Fetterman get him on our show? If there's one dream guest that I'd like to have, it's this senator from Pennsylvania. This guy says out loud exactly what we think in our head. Here's, okay. I'm going to play a clip of a recent appearance of his okay. on Pod Save America, one of my favorite podcasts. All right, let's go. For those of you with more sensitive natures, you may want to fast forward 45 seconds and pick it up from there. Here is John Fetterman talking about the chaos in the Republican House as they try to find a new speaker. I heard you tell a reporter, uh, we were just talking about the speaker race, I heard you tell a reporter this week that House Republicans need to get their act together and decide uh, which dick is going to be speaker. Yeah, and yeah, uh, no, it, it was like, okay, a couple weeks ago, it was like, okay, it was dick one or dick two. Well, and, 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 and now, it's, now it's mystery dick, you know, yeah. this is going to be. <laughs> we want him on the show. <laughs> Jamil, your mama listens to this show, right? She'll skip that part. Okay, She'll skip good. That part. And so I, I apologize to, to mama there and anyone else with sensitive ears, but boy, was that an accurate clip from the great senator from Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. She'll skip that part. We're good. <laughs> you can always drop us a note at black, white, blue in the south at gmail.com. Send us your comments, questions, topic ideas. We would love to take a random topic from you and run with it in a future episode. Yes. You can also follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and even Threads. We have a Linktree page that can connect you to everything. So look at those show notes. If you're not following us on social media, you're missing out on actual video clips of the recordings that Jamil and I do. And yes. it's fun to watch her face. She's got the best <laughs> facial reactions to the topics we have at hand. You don't want to miss out on it. We are now up to 350 unique listeners wow. who have let our words enter their ears. How cool is that? Let's compare that with the hundreds of thousands of listeners <laughs> of a podcast called Hot Mess with Alex Earl. She's a TikTok social media influencer who just started a new podcast a month ago. Stop it. And she's got hundreds of thousands of followers. This is her. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Hot Mess with Alex Earl. Now, how does she get hundreds of thousands of listeners with content like that? You mm -mm. can just imagine where it goes from there. Mm -mm. We're only at 350 and we're celebrating and partying like it's we're nobody's excited. business. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sometimes life is just not fair. <laughs> so we need you to spread the word about our show, which not only entertains and informs, but did you know this, Jamil? It saves lives. Our show? Our show saves lives. Do tell. I was just told that yesterday by one of our listeners. Really? This is somebody with an impeccable character. Okay. She listens to every word we speak in our podcast episodes. And recently she told me that on a long drive home late at night, our show kept her alert and awake and saved her life and countless others on the highway. Wow. And she could have ran over, you know, buses of nuns and whatnot on the way home. But no, our show kept her on the straight and narrow, kept her alert and awake. And so I'm going to have to update our tagline from democratic politics and saving your life with a southern flair yes, yes. <laughs> <That's> yes. <laughs> so jamil i must address the fact that i've been here since 10 a.m oh to record our I'm... show and and let's check the time it is now 609 in the p.m oh, when you've God. arrived and we've gotten set so tell us what's <laughs> been going on in your day that delayed us by eight hours and counting will not let me live this down but i went to see my baby boy play in like a little travel ball tournament and so things happen, oh, but you got to show gotta, up. Mama's got to be priority you over know, podcast. That's it. That's, that's right. It. So you got to look up in the stands and see mama. That's really cool. Did he win? They did. They did? Which was really cool for them to get so excited over the trophy or something. About and this that. is baseball you're talking about, right? Basket. Oh, this was a basketball tourney. Yeah. I thought it was baseball. No, it's basketball. Oh. Well, I would like to move into our introductory segment That's before cool. we get into the regular content. Let's talk about our campaigns a bit. Fired up! Ready to go! Fired up! Ready to go! Fired up! Ready to go! Yay! Now, from my end, I'm still recovering a bit from the Cardinal Drum and Maze banquet, so not too much to update on in the past week. Yeah. I'm constantly running into people who are excited that we have announced. Oh, really? Yes. That's good. Um, It was at an event at the Arts Center, and I was out to dinner, and just people that I've known said, oh, you're running again. That's fantastic. So it's nice to know that the support is still there. That is cool. It's encouraging. We need it. We've also started getting campaign donations, which (laughs) which is really nice. You and I filed our quarterly ethics report on Sunday. Yeah, we did. Did you know there is a website you can go to? It's called Ethics Filing dot sc dot gov again the link is in the show notes you can actually search on any politician any candidate any elected official and get a full detail of every donation and expense for everybody who's donating to them including businesses you'd be surprised Mm -hmm. at the amount of money that private businesses throw at elections yeah it's worthwhile so do you want to talk about your first filing experience how was it so i was super excited and then after we did this I got home and I was like, oh, my God, I never thought that I would file an ethics report as a candidate. So it was kind of like surreal. Very surreal. Yeah, yes. it was surreal. But I will say that it was a pleasurable process. And it's a moment that I don't think I'm ever going to forget. <laughs> it was pleasurable until? Until child and people. <laughs> Let me just give a shout out to the ethics committee for doing your job. Let me just say that. Uh oh. So there's this thing that you're supposed to do that I didn't do. And the ethics committee say, hey, Dr. Brooks, you forgot to do something. So here's the thing. The rule is once you receive the first $500 towards your campaign, you're to file an initial report and notify them that you've just received 
whatever that amount is once you hit that 500 plus mark. And it's no matter when you get it. Nope, doesn't matter. Anytime during the year, as soon as you hit your first 500. You got to tell them. And so my first, let me just say shout out to my first donor, but my first contribution was a thousand dollar check. Wow. And so I was just holding the check deposited the check and I'm saying, okay, good. It's in the account. The money is there. All my books are going to balance, making sure everything is together. And then there's this little person that's sitting off behind the desk at the ethics office saying, that's cool. You put it in the bank, but you forgot to tell us. So I got a letter in the mail that says, hey, first letter said, welcome. And thank you for, you know, completing your reports and your filings. And then there was a second letter. And the second letter said, thanks for telling us, but here's what you got to do. But again, shout out to the ethics committee. And I think that's major because sometimes we think that politics is all over the place and there's really no one checking, but they're doing their job. If you who are listening to us right now are considering running for office, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. We want to expose everything that we do so that everybody can see what it takes to do this. And listen, being a a first-time candidate, I knew there was an ethics committee, but that they would actually be there to go through these things line by line. I mean, I just want the South Carolinians to know that every dime of your money is accounted for. The Ethics Commission is going through something of an upheaval at the moment. That will be a topic for a later episode when we do a deep dive. The only other thing that I've done this past week was I dusted off quite a few of my social media platforms and not dusted off because I kept active, Okay. but I updated my bio to take out the word former candidate. Oh, good. So now I'm candidate candidate, candidate yeah. which is nice. Remember me telling you about all of the platforms that I'm on? Yes. Here's the full list. Blow your mind. Oh my God. So I'm on Facebook. Okay. I'm on Twitter, now called X. Yeah. Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Threads. You've heard of all those, mm-hmm. and I'm only halfway through. I'm also on Post, Spoutable, Pebble, Blue Sky, and Mastodon. And these are all alternative platforms that have cropped up since Elon Musk took over Twitter. <laughs> uh, so it'll be interesting, and I don't know at the end of the year which one of these will survive, but I want to be one of those that got in kind of early on, yeah. grew a following, and whatever remains as the ultimate successor to Twitter, mm. uh, that's where I'll be. That's cool. So it's a lot of fun. And besides, I look at this not as a way to increase votes, because I'll be honest with you, the people of Greenwood, South Carolina, are not terribly active on all these platforms. They seem to be primarily on Facebook. And then you got that TikTok, Jen. And TikTok, which is an interesting little subculture in and of itself. Yeah, it is. But it does allow me to practice my voice. You Mm -hmm. know, I'll, I'll post something on one platform one day, think about it some more tweak my wording on a different platform with the same post the next day and kind of refine the position. I also learn a lot from people and I'm also sharing a lot with people all over the world. And I think that's making a difference in just a little way. So I I don't spend all day on the social medias. I've got a system which allows me to rapidly post across all of them and keep track of what I did on what day. We know there's a system. There's a system, but I at least try to share one item a day on every platform regardless. If you want to follow any of those social media platforms, you can do so again. Visit our Linktree page. You will find a link to Jamil's sites. You'll see links to my sites and you can follow us from there, share our posts, get our messages out, learn what we say for yourselves. Yeah. Our main topic for today is domestic violence, but first, the news. For up to the minute reports, stay tuned to this station. Now the news. The No Labels Party is back in the news. Mm. This time, 
it hit me personally because they sent out an email to all county Democratic Party chairs nationwide. They must have worked hard to scrape that list. But I got an email from, quote, Democrats, Governor Jay Nixon, Dr. Benjamin Chavez Jr., and Senator Joe Lieberman. These are directors of the No Labels Party. It starts off with the following sentence. We are lifelong Democrats and leaders of the No Labels movement. Now, I don't know Governor Nixon or Dr. Chavez. Perhaps I should, but I don't. Okay. But I do know Joe Lieberman. He's a former senator from the state of Connecticut, and he is anything but a lifelong Democrat. Mm. He campaigned nationwide for John McCain when he was running for president against Barack Obama. Oh, my goodness. Now, I respect McCain. I do, too. But a lifelong Democrat is not out there campaigning Mm-mm. for a Republican nominee nationwide. do it. He also frequently openly criticized President Obama, which is fine. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to do that. It's America. Mm-hmm. But you can't be toting the lifelong Democrat card if you do that. So anyhow, this letter claimed, quote, The DNC, that's the Democratic National Committee, Mm -hmm. is trying with a heavy-handed effort to limit Americans' choices in the 2024 election. Now, that's a pretty heavy statement. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. A couple of episodes ago, we read a letter that made serious accusations. They did. And as we read the letter, we were finding nothing of substance. So I made sure I read this email in detail to see, all right, what are the substantive claims that they make to back this up? There were only two accusations they made. I'm listening. Number one, they wrote, the DNC is sharing guidance with state and local party chairs, encouraging them to denounce no labels. Now, I will state as the chair of the Greenwood County Democratic Party, I've received no such email from our state party asking Mm -hmm. us to denounce no labels. Mm Mm-hmm. But even so, I'm a Democrat, and I'm going to support the Democratic nominee. And personally, I'm for all other parties supporting their candidates and platforms. Mm -hmm. And if I've got problems with them, I'm going to state it. For example, the Republican Party can't govern, and I'm going to say it. Correct. The No Labels Party. We talked about this in the past. They've received substantial funding from Harlan Crow, the mm-hmm. same billionaire who bought himself a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. They've engaged in shady business, duping people into switching party affiliations up in Maine to the point that the Secretary of State had to issue them a cease and desist notice. Mm. There's also been reports from the inside that the no-labeled party aren't all that they appear to be. Now, there was a letter from a former supporter. He's a congressman named Mark Pocan. Mm-hmm. And again, you can read this letter in the show notes. Okay. He details it all out. And he says, quote, they are about lowering taxes on the rich and powerful and weakening regulations for big business at the expense of labor. Mm-hmm. This is from a former supporter. Bringing all that to light, they claim, is undemocratic. Well, so be it, because they don't know what democracy means. I agree. So that's claim number one. Claim number two, the only other specific complaint, was about a letter sent by a Democratic Party executive in Utah to their county parties warning them about no labels. So they got wind of this letter that was sent out in Utah and got upset over it, and that's it. The rest of this email is flowery, emotional language about democracy and the soul of America and so on, all based on just those two items. Yeah. Which, 
to me does not register as a complaint. Still not a complaint. They've successfully registered as a party in 10 states so far. You reported a couple of weeks back about, what state was that? North Carolina. Okay, that was one of them. Mm -hmm. The other 10 states, at least as of August, are Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Nevada, North Carolina, as you stated, Oregon, South Dakota, and Utah. Hmm. 10 states down, 40 to go, and really, I've not seen any action here in South Carolina. Yeah. So do you think that the Republicans that are are now part of the No Labels Party also sent letters to the Republican offices? No, they did not. I'm sure they did not. There would have been a news article about it. Yeah. We only got the news article about complaints against the fellow Democrats, because essentially, that seems to be the party they're trying to siphon off from the most. Yeah. I think about this a lot when it comes down to parties. I think what really started me to thinking about it most was when we talked about North Carolina and you have former Democrats, former Republicans that come together under one label, no labels party, and then do what? Here's what happens. If you're not happy the way things are going in the Democrat party and you jump ship and you say, well, you know what? I'm going to the Republican party. Or what they tend to do is they might say, I'm going independent or unaffiliated. If you encounter a problem in one area, when you get to that next area, that problem is there until you learn how to work through it. Jumping ship does not solidify or improve the status of where we are as a country. Figuring out what the problem is and working to reduce the problem is how we get better at what we're doing. But just going in and changing your party is not going to do it. Amen. Fix it. I would like to talk now about legalized religious discrimination. Okay. Now, if you follow the conservative media and the pundits, like a drumbeat, you will hear, quote, protecting our religious freedoms. That's what the conservative parties are all about. Yes. So what specifically does our United States Constitution say about religious freedom? It's here. Well, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that everyone in the United States has the right to practice his or her own religion or no religion at all. Mm -hmm. The Establishment Clause of the First Amendment prohibits the government from encouraging or promoting parentheses, establishing, religion in any way. Mm. That's why we don't have an official religion of the United States. This means that the government may not give financial support to any religion. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean they can't give financial support to religious institutions. Mm-hmm. They just can't prefer a religion or religious practice. Interestingly, a survey was done recently, and most American Christians believe they are victims of discrimination. (laughs) Finish it. Go ahead and finish it. I got to hear this. So there was a report that came from the Public Religion Research Institute and Brookings. Um, They offer evidence. Almost half of Americans say discrimination against Christians is as big of a problem as discrimination against other groups, including blacks and minorities. I heard him get to the end. I knew you was going to say that. Last sentence. Three quarters of Republicans and Trump supporters said this, and so did nearly eight out of ten white evangelical Protestants. Oh, I was going to say something, but you know what? It's no need. You say who said this? 
three-fourths of who? Republicans and Trump supporters. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I thought I was going to waste two sentences on that. But it's who it's coming from that's the issue. And this is another way to draw attention to them or for them to pull a victim card. Here's what we cannot do. We cannot compare apples to oranges. Discrimination against black folk is not and nowhere near discrimination against Christians. Let's start with that definition of the second part. What does it mean for Christians to feel like they're discriminated against? I mean, they said it. I don't know. I'm going with maybe they think that. Well, let's dive into that. Okay, dive. So there are three areas in which Christians have said they felt discriminated against. Okay, go. So here are the three areas. They have claims of being unable to express religious views or practice religious activities like prayer and baptisms in publicly funded forums like public school football games or government meetings. They feel like if there's any type of pushback or regulation that says, no, you may not conduct that here at this time, that is treated as discrimination. But in my opinion, there's a difference between freedom of expression, which is protected. So there's nothing wrong with you wanting to pray out loud in public. Yeah. But where the problem comes in is when there is a religious coercion that's in effect by those who are in positions of authority or power Mm. wanting to conduct such business and making it feel as if those who are under that authority are obligated to join. So the example is a football coach who wants to conduct a prayer with the team on the 50-yard line before a game. Him wanting to pray in public is not the problem, but he is a coach. And the football team, the players, are subservient to that authority. And you're essentially forcing your religion upon them. Even if you say, well, you don't have to pray with us if you don't want. What's it do to the poor Jewish player or the Muslim player or the non-believing player who does not want to partake? Well, now they're ostracized. Now they're outside of that group, and that causes a problem. But no— Even our Supreme Court said that football coach is allowed to do that in that situation, and it has just raised a problem with a whole bunch of constitutional legal scholars that says, no, they've really misinterpreted that First Amendment. The Supreme Court said the football coach is allowed to do what? Conduct those prayers with the team. Because the lawsuit was filed by him when he was told he wasn't allowed to do that because of that reason that I had stated. Mm -hmm. But he felt that he was being discriminated against, not allowed to pray. So let me just ask this, because our state and our country consist of individuals from different backgrounds, different religions. So how would that gentleman feel if on that 50-yard line there were Muslim students who wanted to do their rituals, or there were Jewish students that wanted to do their rituals. Would that be acceptable as well as it only discriminations if Christians can't do it? And don't get me wrong, I love Jesus, but I'm just saying we tend to build a defense when it looks good for us, but you have to understand that sometimes the defense you create also protect someone else. So if we're going to say... The key here is not the expression, but it's the position of authority being imposed upon subservience. So that, if anything, that to me is not discrimination against the Christians. That is discrimination, or at least you are making a victim of those that are not Christians because they have to participate. So that's the first example of how sometimes they feel discriminated against. The other discrimination point that's been brought up is that back during the COVID pandemic, and they were told they weren't allowed to attend church, or basically the rule was no public gatherings while thousands were dying daily, and we don't have a cure, we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a treatment, 
we believe this is a, a communicated through the air and we have to limit public gatherings until we got this thing figured out. Yeah. And that included churches. Okay. And that upset everybody. So when it was public sporting events, you know, empty football stadiums, but once you said, oh, churches, same thing because it's a public gathering, well, then that became religious discrimination to the point where state legislators like those in South Carolina said, no more, we're going to enact a law that says you are not allowed to tell us we can't go to church, even if there's a public pandemic, even if the church is on fire, you can't stop us from going inside that church and praying. So I maybe have a different stance here. And one, trust me, whatever you are doing in that church, you can do outside of that church and still remain close with your faith and your relationship. So going to that particular building is not going to stunt your growth unless you allow it to. And two, It is the responsibility of those that are in leadership in our state and in our country to try to protect the masses. And when you are dealing with a dang blame pandemic, it appears to be airborne. Then maybe you should stay out of the air. Like breathing it in. (laughs) We're going to have to figure that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Like just stay out. Don't go and breathe on people and cough on people and sneeze on people. That's an airborne pathogen. That's right. The third and most common complaint of religious discrimination, and that's the focus of this segment, is the inability to discriminate against others under the guise of your religious beliefs. Let's talk about a case in point. Uh, Most famous legal case in the last two years had to deal with a gay couple wanting to get married and a baker denied them service wouldn't bake them a gay wedding cake because of his religious beliefs. Okay. So his re- he wanted the right with his religious beliefs to discriminate and deny service to somebody else based upon their gender preferences. Okay. Another one had to do with setting up a, a gay wedding website. We talked about that in one of our meetings. So I, I'll refer back to that for all the details. Yeah. But basically, even though the action of same-sex marriage is legal, the fact that you can discriminate service to a legal activity was found to be a constitutional practice Mm. under the guise of religious freedom. That's what the Supreme Court ruled. Again, to the surprise of many, it was pretty shocking. Now, there is a a similarity in my mind to back in the, the 50s and 60s and even earlier in slavery when that same religion was used to justify discrimination on basis of color. Yeah. You know, so when you start to use your religion as a basis for discrimination and say that that is your religious freedom, that just rubs me and so many others wrong. wrong. There is an interesting fight happening nationwide in the realm of foster care, especially when a state government outsources foster care placement to religious organizations. And taxpayer money is used to fund those efforts. Mm -hmm. So here's a first example. Over in Tennessee, appellate judges have revived a couple's lawsuit that alleges a state-sponsored Christian adoption agency wouldn't help them because they are Jewish and argues that Tennessee law protecting such denials is unconstitutional. A three-judge panel of the State of Court of Appeals ruled that that couple has the right as taxpayers to sue in the case, and now that case will go to trial, which is interesting. Hmm. So here you have a Christian agency denying service using state 
taxpayer funds denying service to a couple because they are of a different belief. It is religious institutions implementing religious discrimination, which is just so upside down it boggles the mind. But here's what's worse. It's happening here in South Carolina. And it's even worse than what I just shared in Tennessee. Because in South Carolina, and that was just the warm-up for you, Miracle Hill Ministries, based in Greenville, is the largest foster care agency in the upstate. They welcomed an important victory in October. So this month, they won in court. A U.S. district court dismissed two lawsuits that challenged South Carolina's reliance on faith-based Miracle Hill as a child placement agency. This agency places children only in homes where parents are followers of Christ, active in a Christian church, agree with traditional evangelical teachings, including affirming biblical views on gender identity and marriage. So here is an organization that receives $600,000 a year from the South Carolina Department of Social Services, and they receive $2.4 million in government grants who are allowed to deny use of that money to go to help couples that are Jewish. And not just Jewish, but Hindu, Muslim, atheist, whatever. It's absolutely funny because these same people will go around touting their Judeo-Christian values. What's that first word? Judeo. Judeo. You know where that comes from? That's where it comes from. The Jewish people. That's where it comes from. At the same time, with the other side of their mouth, they'll say, yeah, Jewish people, well, you're not worthy to receive foster placement from our agency. I have so many problems with this whole topic, but this is exactly what is happening. You're using the religious beliefs and weaponizing that against other individuals. You you have children that need a loving family to take care of them, and they happen to not have the organization's same religious beliefs. Even though the family is fit, the ideal team that you know that this child could grow and prosper and become a well-functioning member of society, you say no because they are not Christians? I'm going to blow your mind. I'm actually in favor of Miracle Hill Ministries in placing these kids to wherever they feel they want to place them. If it weren't for the fact they were receiving public funds to do so. That's my problem. If they used only their funds and received no taxpayer money, they can do what they want. As abhorrent as it would be, they're a private entity, they can do whatever they want. But they're not. So I have a problem. Exactly. That means the same Jewish couple, the same same sex couple that wants to have a foster child placed with them are paying taxes to this same ministry. To be told no. And that is wrong. To not only be told no, but to be told no. And then you have children that remain displaced without having the consistency of having a family. Now, one lawmaker argued, well, you know, they can always go to a Jewish foster placement firm or a Muslim foster placement firm or an LGBTQ foster placement firm. Did that person say that out loud? Yes. Yes, that was the main argument against that problem. And of course, you, you know, guess how many of those there are in South Carolina. And Stephen, to go back to the Judeo-Christian stuff, you see the evangelicals are just going upside down about supporting Israel and supporting Jews and issuing two-page letters about we support the Jews and to say otherwise is a traitorous statement and so on. Yet these same people won't allow adoption agencies or foster care agencies to place into Jewish homes. You summed it up when you opened it up and you said they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. That's exactly what that is. 
The third news item today, before we get to our main topic, this is a heavy one. I don't know if I can handle another one. This is a heavy one. This next article is about child marriage in South Carolina and throughout the United States. So I'm going to lay some heavy facts on you. Are you ready for this? Crap. Now, this is actually very interesting because I was prepping this. I've had this on our topic list for quite a long time. Yeah. And the other night as I was sitting down, putting together the research and getting all the thoughts in order... My wife is sitting in the other room, and she's become obsessed with this TV series called Designated Survivor. Have you heard of it? I have not. It was a political thriller that was out a few years ago, lasted three seasons, and then was canceled or not renewed. It starred Kiefer Sutherland. Do you know that name? He's a famous star. I don't. You'd recognize him if you saw him. If you remember that TV show 24, he was the main character in 24. Anyhow, you and I might run in different TV show circles. Okay. Yeah, I'm a Hallmark girl. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that is. <laughs> the, the premise of this series is about a low-level cabinet member of the United States government. In fact, his character was the Secretary for Housing and Urban Development. Oh, he wow. was like an academic nerd. Okay. He becomes president of the United States after a catastrophic attack on the U.S. Capitol during a State of the Union address. It is a tradition that whenever you have a public gathering like the State of the Union or a presidential inauguration where all the leaders are together, you take one of your cabinet members and you sequester them away, somewhere far away, so that in case of emergency, that there is somebody to assume control. Yes. And this series explored that fact. So this nerdy little director of housing suddenly finds himself in a mess when everybody is wiped out and how he's president of the United States. Anyhow, it's an interesting show. In this particular episode that my wife was watching, I heard this play in the background. Let me clarify, where does he stand on child marriage in the U.S.? I don't follow. You are aware that America also allows children to marry. That's not true. Go ahead and check the statutes in all 50 states. The minimum age at which people can get married by law in this country is 18. 18 being the uh, age at which you're no longer considered a minor, ergo no child marriage. What about loopholes? What loopholes? 48 states have loopholes allowing minors to marry. Uh, 16 and 17 year olds with parental permission. Children 15 and younger require a judge's approval which is routinely granted. I'll have to get back to you on that. So the president is against child marriage in other countries, but fine with it here? So it was a very relevant statement. Everything that was stated in that clip is absolutely true. And I want to dive a little deeper into that. Oh, wow. According to the New Republic, this is a new source, Republican state legislators are opposing bills to raise the age of marriage consent to 18. Mm. So there are states in this country that has the age of consent that's lower, and Republican state lawmakers are opposing it. The United States has pledged to the United Nations seven years ago that it would end child marriage by the year 2030. But it doesn't look like we're going to make it because of Republican opposition. In March of this year, the Washington Post did an analysis and found that 43 states, including South Carolina, does allow children under 18 to get married. Another study found that there were incidents, now get this, this is since the year 2000, we're not talking the 1800s or 1700s, since 2000, children as young as the age of 10 were permitted to get married. This is in the United States 
in the modern age. I am not exaggerating. Oh, God. Links to these studies are in the show notes, and I encourage you to look at them, bookmark them, and use them in your conversations, because this is not nearly talked about as much Mm-mm. as it ought to be. Mm-mm. In many states, statutory rape suddenly turns into a legal and religiously protected act under the guise of marriage. Yes, that I knew. I'll give wow. an example. In Wyoming, one of the states that had no minimum age to get married. Nowhere in their laws did it state that there was a minimum age. Recently, the state did pass a law eliminating child marriage altogether. They require anyone who gets married to be at least 18. The Republicans have a supermajority in Wyoming, so good for them. They got it figured out. But the Wyoming Republican Party... So, you know, the party and the lawmakers are not always in alignment. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party campaigned against that bill. I remember reporting on it as this debate was occurring, warning voters that it would compromise parental rights, meaning my right and your right to allow our children to get married. That's what they thought that this bill was going to compromise. Quote, marriage is the only institution in Wyoming statute designed to keep a child's father and mother living under the same roof one mailing said, and cooperating in raising of any children that they together conceive. It is the natural right of every child. It blows your mind. Uh, they thought that it was putting arbitrary limits on child marriage and interfering with parental rights and religious liberty. That was their argument against it. Oh, my goodness. Here's another one that's going to blow your mind. This is in the state of Missouri. There is a state senator named Mike Moon, and he got into this debate with somebody. Now, you're going to hear somebody else's voice first, and then you'll hear Mike Moon from Missouri respond. I've heard you talk about parents' rights to raise their kids how they want. In fact, I just double-checked. You voted no on making it illegal for kids to be married to adults at the age of 12 if their parents consented to it. You said, actually, that should be the law because it's the parents' right and the kids' right to decide what's best for them, to be raped by an adult. Okay? Do you know any kids who have been With married marriage. at age 12? That any, was the law. You, know you voted kids? not to change it. Do you know any kids who have been married at age 12? I, I, I don't need to. I do. Uh, and guess what? They're still married. Gentlemen. Cha. Guess what? They're still married as if that was a good thing. Yeah, that opens so many doors. Um, uh, women, hey, tap a woman if you know one. I'm um, just tap them real quick. Um, thank you. This is manipulation. This is manipulation. Why would you support a 12 year old being married and making grown up decisions? And for someone who is sane or mentally competent to say that parents and the children should be able to make the decision to marry at that age. Now, I don't know if they've read any psychology-based books, right? But in there, there are stages of development. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to read the whole book. Tell them just, just look for stages of development. When you get to a certain age, your competency level starts to develop to where you can make sound decisions. And a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old should not be making those decisions about who they want to marry. You would think we were talking about a third world country with child brides, but no, we are talking about the United States of America. So do you know where I'm going with this? What I'm going to talk about next? Go. I'm going to bring it home. 
Let's talk about South Carolina, shall we? Let's go. Look at your eyes are closed. You're preparing for the pain. Yeah. Well, I want to share with you that thankfully, and maybe surprisingly, South Carolina does not even rank in the top 10 states for childhood marriage. Mm. But it's not for lack of trying. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I want to close this session with a South Carolina Senate hearing from last year where Senator Richard Cash from Anderson. Have you heard that name before? Yeah, child. He was the guy that brought the uterus props. Yeah, he, yes, that's him. To the, uh, the Senate floor. He argued that teens having sex should get married and not use birth control. I'm going to play a clip for you. Now, what you're going to hear are two senators. The first one is Senator Brad Hutto from Orangeburg. He's the one that you hear first, and then you will hear Richard Cash countering back to him. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. A state senator from South Carolina argued that teenagers should be allowed to get married but not be allowed to have contraception. He's saying that 16- and 17-year-olds are mature enough to decide to get married but they're not mature enough to be taught about contraception in school, and they're not mature enough to receive contraception on their parents' health plan, and they're not mature enough to get contraception from the health department, but they are mature enough to get married? Is that what you're saying? I think my position when this has come up before is if a 16- or 17-year-old Certainly, if they have their parental consent and, and they wish to get married and their parents approve it, then um, correct. I don't have a problem with that. But you just moved to table a bill that required parental consent to get birth control pills on the parent's health plan. Where's the logic? Well, the logic is... I believe sex belongs within marriage because sex leads to children and children needs parents. And so I'm not in favor of the state paying for contraceptives for unmarried children. Uh, I don't think that's a good policy. I think children come from sex and, and children need mommy and a daddy. And that means marriage. So mom and dad can give consent to get you married at 16, but not to put you on birth control. Yeah. There you have it. That is our South Carolina General Assembly at work for you. um, What benefit? Was this so shocking that you've lost your voice? I mean, I I almost (laughs) I think I think I'm on that show punked, if you remember it. Like I'm waiting on Ashton to jump out and say, gotcha. And he ain't come out yet. So that's a problem. What is the benefit to the state to increase the number of married people? And the reason I ask this question is I don't believe it's really about parents' rights and children's rights to marry. I think that there is a behind the scenes benefit that the state is trying to push to say, if you want to get married and your parents say, yeah, go ahead and get married. What are we are we saving money because we have additional benefits if you're married as one? I I, I don't see this as any type of financial or logical decision making on behalf of the state. This is pure conservatism at work that defies rational belief. Okay, I still think I think there's a trail in their mind. I think there's a trail because in their mind. If if you're married and you're in the home with them, then you got two people who are working and those two people should be able to get jobs that take care of that child. But it's beyond getting married. It's being it's forcing them to get married and have children because you're denying them contraceptive access. You're absolutely right. I get that. We're sane. 
I understand what you're saying. So how are two 16-year-olds raising a child and working at the same time? Because somebody's paying for it. Somebody has to be. And Something. how does that benefit the state? Again, I'm, I'm coming I, back to your logic here that there's some I, sort of underlying. And that's what I'm asking. What is it? This is the only thing that I can get because I do not. I'm just going to be real frank. I don't think any of these senators are that invested with the health and the well-being of these of children. I mean, they dang show weren't that well vested over the women that bring the children into the world. So I don't think it's about them making the right decision for the children. I'm trying to figure out what is the point of trying to do this in anybody's common sense. Anybody who had a little bit of sense would say there's something wrong with approving for children to be married. And to that senator, what makes you think because someone is married that you are approving for them to still have sex? Maybe that's not the way that's going to go. He said if there's marriage, there's sex. Sex should occur in marriage. Would a 12-year-old? Well, I like how he dropped the knowledge that children come from sex. Did you catch that? Because I wasn't yeah, aware of that I until he said it. it. The he, guy's a dang blang genius. Mm, Let um, me uh, wrap up with just some facts about South Carolina and the marriage age requirements law. So this is what is in our state books in, in the, the, the South Carolina Code of Laws, section 20-1-100. Um, basically, it says that you must be 18 to get married. Minors who are 16 or 17 can get married with parental consent. And then that's it. It's as simple as that. Quote, any person under the age of 16 is not capable of entering into a valid marriage and all marriages here and after entered into by such persons are void ab initio, which means from the beginning, it's completely voided out. So how old's your boy, your youngest? 17. What if he came to you and says, mama, we're getting married tomorrow? That's some crap. The answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. Well, what if he had, he had uh, given consent? What if he got parental consent? He could still get married. He could, but he's not getting parental consent from us. <laughs> so I, the answer is no. The answer is no. I mean, do you really think that you are building a society that will be able to sustain itself through the test of time if you are allowing two underdeveloped minds, cognitive abilities that are below? Oh, these are the same minds that aren't allowed to learn about uh, slavery and black you, and history. And I wrote that and down. I wrote that down. Oh, LGBTQ you, issues. You can say, I want to be married, but you can't decipher what is in the book, what's real, what's That's happening, right. what's not. That's right. It all is connected. Lunatics. Tonight, a horrific scene at a community center swimming pool where police say this man shot and killed his wife while her daughter was taking swim lessons. Learning more this evening about what sparked that deadly school shooting in San Bernardino, California. A husband killing his estranged wife in her classroom. Investigators say the call came from a woman claiming her husband had pulled a gun on her. Deputies say the couple were found dead inside a truck outside the home. Now at 10.30, tragedy in southern Utah after police say a father shoots and kills his wife, mother-in-law, and five children. There was a study that was published by the Violence Policy Center, and it is entitled When Men Murder Women. This is a review of 25 years of female homicide victimization in the United States. 25 years of collecting data on women that have been murdered. 
and this is maybe a 30-page document. It's going to be in the show notes. Yeah, I, I, I put a link to the PDF. Great. You can download it for yourself. It's, it's sh- a pretty good document. And it's you very should well go further because what I'm going to do is just scratch the surface, but there's so much in here that will prompt questions. But this is a single victim, single offender incident. So that's what we're talking about, 25 years of watching. This study in this particular group has been able to lead to the passage of some laws that would protect women and children from domestic violence, i.e. removing guns from domestic violence offenders, having education campaigns, and also doing review boards, homicide review boards. But here are your numbers. 45,817 females were murdered by males from 1996 to 2020. 29,503, which is 64% of that number, were white. 14,038, which is 31%, were black. 1,216, 3% were Asian Pacific Islanders. 522, which is going to be like less than 1%, if 1%, were American Indian Alaska Natives. Before you go any further in the numbers, there was one thing at the beginning of that report that caught my eye, which was very sad and tragic. What was it? This group, the Violence Policy Center, the VPC, they will no longer be issuing this report. This is the last one. They relied on an FBI system called SHR. I don't know what SHR stands for, but that's what they relied on for all this data. Recently, the FBI retired that system, replaced it with something called the National Incident-Based Reporting System. But during this transition, not all the states are doing it. The data is spotty. Things just aren't being reported correctly. And as a result, they said they cannot do state-by-state gun violence research as anymore, and they are discontinuing any further issuance of this report. That's very interesting because we roll off these numbers. You should want to know if that what it was in 2020, what is it now? What is it in 2023? What will it be in 2025? Are what we implementing the things that I've already covered? Are those things yielding positive results? Well, now you have no way to track it because there's no consistency. And when you're looking at data, whenever there's no consistency, your numbers can become what you want it to be. So I, I agree and I, I appreciate you going ahead and mission it. Um, this report does not include anyone who was missing. So if there was a woman who was missing and still has not been found. Oh, I missed that. She is not a part of these stats. So what that lets you know is that the numbers are still skewed. There could be more women. The percentage of black female victims killed with a gun has increased dramatically in the past decade from 51.6% in 2011 to 72%. 72 freaking percent in 2020. I'm checking for gun control laws. 61% were murdered by their intimate partner. 53 were killed with a handgun, a handgun. 36,421 incidents total. Um, 86% were not related to the commission of a crime. So this is somebody you know. When the crime, you weren't getting robbed. Um, you weren't on your way and you just got attacked in the park because you were walking the animals, the dogs. 62% were arguments between a female and a male. Emotions got the best, and now we have a victim. Now, you mentioned guns being a significant factor here, and in this article, they made a very good point. And there's almost a connection between domestic violence and and fatalities and suicide. They say the same thing. Guns can easily escalate domestic violence to domestic homicide. Yeah. The availability and ease of access to get a firearm and have one handy is responsible for a large number of these 
these deaths, both from suicide and domestic violence incidents. The availability of a gun allows you to make that rash decision. Oh, of course. I believe that. Uh, And in fact, with regards to domestic homicide, they said that access to a firearm is a well-known risk factor for intimate partner homicide, increasing a woman's risk of being a victim by five times. That is why this particular document in this group work to pass laws that would reduce access to the offenders for having that. South Carolina is in the top 10 of states. Let me say that again. South Carolina, your state, my state, is in the top 10 states for 23 out of the past 25 years, ranked 17th in the nation in terms of household firearms ownership rates. I don't know if you saw it in the table that was at the end, because I love tables. I'm a table guy. Crazy stats, yeah. That South Carolina stat Although we're in the top 10 states, do you know how many times South Carolina ranked number one during those 25 years? Say it. Four times. Four out of those 25 times, South Carolina was number one on that list. One time is too much. Yes. One time is too much. So you talked about laws. There's one law in particular I wanted to bring attention to, and that was a national law called the Violence Against Women Act. Yes. Very relevant to the discussion we're having. It sought to create and fund comprehensive, cost-effective responses to domestic violence, sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. It was enacted back in 1994, and because it's a funded program, it has to be authorized every year or every budget cycle and, and voted on. Yeah. But it enabled the U.S. Departments of Justice and Health and Human Services to work with federal, tribal, state, and local sources to respond to these crimes. It was last passed in 2022 as part of the bipartisan omnibus spending signed by President Biden. And in fact, he took it even further and strengthened the Violence Against Women Act to create housing, legal assistance, alternatives to criminal responses, all sorts of good programs nationwide as part of that reauthorization. Now, let's talk about the South Carolina congresspersons and their reactions to this law. I know that back in 2021, this thing was actually voted against. The bill passed eventually 244 to 172 in the U.S. Congress, but Duncan Mace, Ralph Norman, William Timmons, and Rice, they all voted against the Violence Against Women Act. Why do you think they voted against a program like this? So let's talk about our congressman, family values, and great supporter of women, Congressman Jeff Duncan. Why would he, year after year, for the hundreds of years he's been in office, why would he vote against the Violence Against Women Act time and time again? What do you think his rationale is? I have a guess. Go. I, I feel that he thinks Second Amendment rights outweigh the rights of women to live. Listen, a lot of the individuals that we are going to speak about think that everything outweighs the rights of women. For example, there's legislation that prevents those who have been convicted of domestic violence crimes from owning a firearm. For three years. And they feel that that is an infringement upon Second Amendment rights. Yeah. And it says a minimum of three years. But are you going to tell me that you don't feel like saying you should not be able to have access to a handgun or a weapon in a certain amount of years? Is You don't think that that's enough? Well, first, they'll, they'll argue that that law will, will not prevent them from getting a gun. 
but then that's true of every law. Correct. You know, there's laws against speeding. That's not going to stop people from speeding. Correct. You know, but it does reduce it. And that's what we're aiming for is that you don't want a, a guy who has a criminal record of domestic violence on a whim of passion running into a gun store, buying a weapon, not having a background check against it or anything that would prevent him from getting it and then going and committing murder. On a single day in 2020, South Carolina Domestic Violence Program served 620 victims of domestic violence and received 101 hotline calls, averaging four contacts per hour, 134 requests for services on days, um, on this day, that could not be provided due to lack of resources. Oh. And you got lunatics that we as women vote in. So here's a federal program designed to fund it. Correct. We're not spending enough money anywhere near enough. We don't and even these have Congress people are like, yeah, we don't want that money. And we we'll pass. Women continue to vote for these individuals <sighs> who have yet to show that we are a priority and that we matter too. Well, you matter if you're a 12 year old girl wanting to get married. Yeah, for their benefit. Right. Yeah. One in three women and one in four men in the United States have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. And I think it is important to my article talks about men killing women, but I don't want to let it go unrecognized that men, too, can be victims of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. So but I focused in on women because I am one. But men do also go through this as well. Sixty five percent of all murder suicides involve an intimate partner. 96% of the victims of these crimes are female. Well, Jamil, I appreciate you bringing up that topic. This happens to be October, and it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I appreciate you bringing a lot of awareness to me and our listeners. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. And that's a wrap for this episode of Black, White, and Blue in the South. We hope you enjoy what you heard, although I don't know how you could have enjoyed a lot of what we just discussed. Yeah, this was heavy, y'all. We're sorry. (laughs) But still, we would sure appreciate a rating and review so that our reach can grow. Seriously, we don't ask for any money, but if we're ever going to overtake hot mess with Alex Earl, we need your ratings and reviews. It only takes a few seconds to do so. If you are a blue dot in a red sea, keep the faith, keep up the hard work. Change only happens over many years of work and dedication, so get involved in any way you can. Yeah. A single raindrop may not do much, but a storm? When enough raindrops get together, we can tear down mountains. Let's tear them down. The end. The preceding podcast is a product of Big Media and copyright 2023. All rights reserved.